They're available in the back as you leave today. And wouldn't that be interesting if it were that easy? Oftentimes, as we continue looking at different fears in our fear series, one of the things that is a fear of a different sort, it's a fear that doesn't come across our radar as visible as maybe the cringing fear, such as the fear of uh, death or the fear of failure or the fear of some type of collapse coming our way. It's a fear of man, or maybe better said is the fear of the opinions, the assessment, and the judgments of other people. I remember in, as a university student a verse that hit me between the eyes when I heard it, it uh, in a sermon one day was Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 and it says the fear of man will prove to be a trap. And I thought about that and I thought about how when you're living for the opinion of other people you are somewhat snared and you're somewhat trapped and governed. You begin to adjust your behavior at times. So others will improve their opinion of you. And it's so hard to do because people are so hard to please. Everyone has a different angle as to what would please them. But then the last part of the verse says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Safety comes when we overcome the fear of man and we have a singular focus on God. Uh, today, as we continue our study in Fearless, we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul sort of fleshed out that concept of the, uh, becoming free from the fear of man. You know, one of the, some of the signs of the fear of man or the results of it is that uh, we end up making really poor decisions when we are man-fearers. Uh, that's seen in several different biblical passages. One of them is the story of the crucifixion. In Mark 15, 15, it says that Pontius Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowds, and so he released Barabbas instead of Jesus. Maybe one of the most pivotal events in history, although we do understand that God ordained the, the death of Christ and that Christ chose to give his life for the sins of mankind, there's an element where the fear of man, Barabbas' weak will, he knew what was right, he knew what was true, but he would much rather have man's temporary approval than God's ultimate approval. Now, Paul was in a different type of predicament about man-fearing. The, the church in Corinth was deeply divided. That's why I love our church so much, because the Lord has given us and our congregation, such a spirit of love and oneness for each other. The Corinthian church was, maybe you've been in a church like that, where dukes were up on Sunday morning. And they, had, they divided up into little camps. There was the Paul camp, the Apollos camp, and then the hyper-spiritual crowd that just called themselves the Jesus group. So everybody wanted to be, wanted to know whose camp you were in and what was better and what was worse. Paul came in to really sort of iron things out and said, listen, it's not about who you say you belong to. We shouldn't live for the favor of man. We should be concerned with pleasing God. And so he wrote some powerful words that I think will really speak to our hearts if we allow God's Spirit uh, to minister to us from his word. I'm going to read, first of all, the first two verses in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. And it says this, So then, men are to, ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove 
faithful. As we begin to look at this passage and we talk about how to be free from the fear of man, the, the first thing that comes uh, to our attention as we look at verse 1 is this, form your identity as a servant of Christ. Now, the truth is, there is an element of man's opinion that is not as unhealthy. Uh, for instance, everyone would, if you had the choice to be viewed as favorable or unfavorable by someone, all of us would, would prefer that we be viewed as favorable. Uh, and sometimes uh, when there is no regard for basic human decency, uh, we don't take care of ourselves, and we're not concerned about some of the basic essentials of what we should be doing, not just as a follower of Christ, but as a productive person. But what happens is that natural desire for affirmation gets extremely out of control, and we soon begin to calculate our moves as a politician in election year, always casting out the opinion polls. What are people going to think if I come down on this issue? What are people going to think if I say this or do this? And all of a sudden, our focus is completely off the Lord. And so Paul says our identity is not in how we perform. Our identity is not by the size of our home or the brand of our car or our parents or all that we accomplish and do. We, we should form our core sense of who we are based on who we are in Christ. And, and Paul said who we are in Christ essentially, in verse 1, is a servant of Christ. Now, a slave in, this, in the first century certainly did not have an identity. Their identity was completely connected with their master. And if their master was good to them and well-respected and kind, they had a, a greater sense of perception. If their master was one of the many cruel ones, then it was a, 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 a tough identity to bear. But we have the privilege of being the undertow servants and slaves of the most incredible being in all the universe, the most loving God himself, the most miracle-working, wisest person that ever lives, and we are servants, slaves, ones with no rights of Jesus Christ. That's an incredible identity. Our only problem is it's often not the identity that we prefer. We sort of drink of the spirit of this age that says you're only somebody if you can be identified with success as the world defines it but paul says our real sense the way that we should be regarded is a slave as a servant connected to the one the only one that really matters jesus christ and then he goes on to say that we're also uh, entrusted with the secret things of god he was meaning that the the gospel was is now fleshed out the, the message of of God, his grace and favor that was carried all along through the Old Testament has now come out into the open with the appearance of Jesus Christ, his resurrection. Now we have this incredible message to share. So we're, we're slaves identified with Jesus and we have such incredible news. So when you're living your life, when you're going public, when you're walking out into this world, you're walking around Lake County, you're in your neighborhood, you're in the store, you're at your office, you're with your family. How do you want others to view you? Paul said men are to regard us as servants 
of Christ. <laughs> then he goes on in verse 3 to describe another way that we can learn to overcome the fear of man, and that's the second principle on number, number two. It says this, aim for indifference to man's approval. Look at his bold statement in verse 3. He says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. He's about to describe three different judgments in the rest of this passage. One is the judgment of man, one is the judgment of self, and three is the judgment of God. And the, a key to this little test is that the first two don't matter. And he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or a human court. That word human court really means the human day. There's a judgment court that will stand before at the end of time uh, before the one true God and the Bible it, Paul is saying here there's sort of a human court as well it's unofficial no one set it up but we all know it's there and Paul is saying I'm aiming we should aim for indifference to the court of mankind now a few principles under that first of all a indifference to man's approval is different than being wise and accountable. I want to read you a verse in 2 Corinthians that almost sounds for a moment contradictory to what Paul just said. And I would call it an apparent contradiction instead of a real contradiction. This is in the past, in the context of when Paul was raising money to help the, the poor church in Macedonia. And he is trying to explain to the Corinthians of how he was very, very careful, honest, and wise in carrying that offering back to his brothers. And so in verse 21, he says this, For we're taking great pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. If you read that verse initially, you might say, Wait a second, I, I thought Paul was not in the eyes of men. I thought he didn't care what anybody thought. Now, there is sometimes a brazen arrogance when we begin to become free from the fear of man, and we begin to think and say things like this. Well, you know what? I don't care what anybody says about me. I'm going to say what I want to say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and that's all there is to it. Now, that is not a real freedom from the fear of man. That's making a bold statement, but oftentimes when we speak and think like that, our eyes are still on everybody. Because um, there is a sense where, where Paul's pointing out here that freedom from the fear of man does not mean we're not accountable to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And freedom from the fear of man does not mean that we should not seek to set a good example before mankind. We still have the, uh, the, both the privilege and the responsibility to be lights to the world, for people to see the light we have in Christ, and therefore our light should not be full of darkness with poor language and poor habits and poor choices that others would see. Now, that's tricky, isn't it? If we're called to be indifferent to the approval of man, yet still to be accountable and wise before others, how do we walk that tightrope? How do we walk that line? There, you know, let me throw another kink into it. We're also supposed to encourage each other. But sometimes we prefer to discourage each other. Maybe because, like, you know what, I, really, I should build this person up, but I don't want them to fear man's approval or get the big head, so I'm just going to sort of throw a few insults into the game. No, we're still supposed to be encouragers toward one another, and when you receive encouragement from someone, thank the Lord, uh, express appreciation to them, but don't set your affection on that encouragement. 
How do we walk that tightrope of aiming for indifference to the fear of man? Well, B under number two might could help. Uh, B is this. Indifference to man's approval means treasuring God's favor instead of man's. Something Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 41. He simply came up with a statement uh, speaking uh, in front of Pharisees saying this. I do not accept praise from men. And, and the, the one, the Phillips translation simply says this, man's approval or disapproval means nothing to me. In other words, his ultimate treasure was what God said, was seeking the face of the Father. And so he didn't adjust his actions. If Jesus would have adjusted his behavior to curry the favor of men, the cross would have never happened. And so he aimed indifference to, the, to man's opinions by treasuring God above man. Difficult to do. That passion to be liked doesn't fade, especially if you're going to be a moral ambassador in our day. There are issues that will make the church incredibly unpopular for generations to come. One of our problems is that we like to express our strong views, often in a combative way, in an unbecoming spirit, and that doesn't honor the Lord. But the truth is, we must not yield to what God has spoken about in his word. I remember several years ago, we were at a sort of a larger family uh, event. I believe it was actually a funeral. And I, I did not know some of Susie's extended family very well. And one of her uncles and uh, her, her cousins were speaking about this was not the hot topic that it is now, but they were speaking about homosexuality. And this was maybe 15, 20 years ago, and now it's on the news and the paper every single day. And so they were speaking about how people are, are born that way. And, and um, you know, I was the young preacher in the room. Or I may have been a seminary student at that time. And they were asking me, well, what do you think about it? And I said, well, and, and before I even could speak, the cousin looked at me and said, don't you tell me you think this is morally wrong. I had that moment to fit in better in the family dinner. <laughs> or, the, or they had the opportunity to follow what God has spoken in six different biblical passages. It's a clear reference to what the Bible truly says about homosexuality being not God's plan for man. And so as I carefully walked that line, I simply said, you know, I believe what the Scripture teaches. I believe what the Scripture teaches that marriage is for a man and a woman. I do believe we should extend Christian love uh, to people that have a different perspective, but I really do believe what God has spoken. Now, I... Was, was marked off a Christmas card list for a little while. <laughs> I didn't have man's favor in that room, but I was able to put my head on the pillow at night knowing that I had pleased the living God. Now, we're going to have to walk that very fine line. Another principle about that as we aim to be indifferent to man's approval is C. Indifference to man's approval comes by resting in God's approval. Look what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. He said, as we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul realized he had the favor, he had the approval of the only one that really mattered. And so the more he rested in what God thought of him, the freer he was to be benign to what man thought of him. I, I don't know why I remember this so well, but I remember as a middle schooler, 
Uh, we, I was in a speech pl- ca- class. I'm not sure how I wound up in that class, but I guess it's uh, helped me a little bit through the years. And one of the things we were supposed to do on, in the first couple of weeks is all of the classmates had to get up and you had to give a speech about you. And I remember you were supposed to get, tell a little bit about your hobby, your family, and something else. And then you're supposed to tell about something you believed in. And you're supposed to bring a prop for everything. So you're supposed to bring a picture of your family, picture of your favorite sport or whatever you like to do. And when I was, I was working on that little speech at night and I realized it said, bring so, uh, something that you believe in. Well, I was... Uh, Christian at the time, of course, and I said to myself, well, I, I should bring a Bible. I'm going to be the only kid at Wedgwood Middle School with a Bible in my backpack. <laughs> Man, that's going to be really dorky. And here I'm talking with God and wrestling about it. I'm going, so I take the smallest Bible I could find, you know. And I just stick it in my Bible underneath everything going, oh, man, it's going to be embarrassing. Well, I remember the, the, one of the first people to get up and give their speech in class was the little bell of the campus. The little cutest gal that ever, of the apple of everyone's eye. And she got up and said, you know, well, I wanna, what, something I believe in is I believe in Jesus and the Bible. And so all the guys in the room were like, yes. All the guys in the room really became good Christians that day. <laughs> so we got up, we're like, yeah, believe in the Bible, praise the Lord. Not my finest day, you know, not my finest hour. <laughs> but it's interesting, sometimes we tend to get more we get a, a better security from something that's false. You, you don't get a, a, you don't become free from the fear of man by wanting to impress someone else. You only become free from, you only become indifferent to man's approval when your identity, when your drive comes from a resting in God's love. That desire for approval, I believe, is God-given. Our tendency, though, is to satisfy that drive in a man-centered way. We need for that drive within us that God placed to be totally satisfied by who we are in Christ and by the unfailing love of God. It's so much easier if you think about it because God's opinion of us doesn't shift and change by every single word that comes out of our mouth. But man's does. Have you ever looked at someone and they really said something or did something and you simply said to yourself or to them, man, I've lost so much respect for you. And your opinion, boom, changed in a moment but the living God's love for us the Bible says again and again is unfailing yes he's not pleased with our poor behavior but his love for us it was settled once and for all on the cross and we become indifferent to man's approval when we rest in the love of God now look in verse 4 as Paul uh, sort of gives another angle of how to become free from the fear of man he says this my conscience is clear but that doesn't make me innocent it is the Lord who judges me This is a really interesting statement. Paul is basically saying, you know what? I'm not, I am not at this time aware of any major spiritual roadblock in my life. I I am a sinner. He said it, he said before, I'm a chief of sinners, but there's nothing that I haven't confessed or given to the Lord that I know of. But then he says, you know what? That is not that big a deal, though. That doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord that judges me. You know, have you read the proverb that says, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but the Lord tests the heart. We can seem innocent to us. Paul was saying that. And by the way, I want to encourage that kind of introspection in your lives. You should be asking, Lord, is there a roadblock in my life? Am I not dealing with this sin in my life? Am I not dealing with the things I'm saying, the places I'm going, the things I'm viewing, what I'm watching, how I'm planning my life, what I'm thinking about? But Paul was saying, you know what? As far as I know, things are well between God and I. But you know what? 
my judgment is skewed. And so a third principle this morning is we must allow the Lord's scrutiny. Yes, have a self-evaluation, but make sure that you're allowing the scrutiny of the Lord himself. I don't know if any of you men have ever had a similar experience to me. Uh, if Susie and I are dressing to go somewhere and maybe we have to look a little bit nicer, uh, it takes me just a little bit less time than Mrs. Lee to get ready for the evening. And I have several times I have come out in what I was going to wear for the night. By the way, I, wasn't gonna, I was about to say the word outfit, but men don't have outfits. We have pants and shirts. Anyway, I was coming out with uh, what I was going to wear for the evening, and she looked at me and said, are you wearing that? And I've learned to say, no, no, this is what I'm wearing just while you get ready. <laughs> and then before we leave, I'm going to wear whatever you pick out for me to wear, dear. <laughs> because you know what? The five seconds I spent in the mirror, it looked fine to me. <laughs> but it didn't look fine to the one that really knew it, <laughs> that knew fashion or knew what looks good. And so, you know, we, sometimes we look great to us. But the Lord is the only one that can really assess our life. And so the judgment of man is not the issue. The judgment of ourselves is not the issue. He, in verse 5, he then speaks about the real issue. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore judge nothing before its appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, there is an awful tendency in us when we are, are man-fearers. When we're standing in awe of the opinions of others, there's something that develops in our spirit, and that is this, a critical, judgmental attitude. We have the tendency to look down upon other people. Why? Because when you're a man-fearer, you buy into the lie that the way you assess someone is by worldly standards. And so, of course, man-fearers are the most judgmental, the most critical, the most difficult people when it comes to others. It's not that just we're just afraid of what others think of us. We join in the sick game of judging others. And this was a huge problem in the Corinthian church. Everybody felt like it was their business to look at everyone else's life instead of their own before the Lord. And Jesus told us, hey, don't go looking at someone, at someone else's, the speck in someone else's eye, when you have a big two-by-four coming out of your face because you can't see correctly. Now, the principle here is number four, trust God to do his job well. You think you're a better assessor of someone else than God? Everyone's going to stand or fall before God. They're not going to stand or fall before you, before me. They'll stand before God, so trust God to do his job well. Now, A, under number four, Christ will effectively judge the world at his return. So in verse four, it says, Wait till the Lord comes, he'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and expose the motives of man's heart. There's so much there that we can't see. Maybe we saw someone doing this, we're like, Oh, that person's bad. Look at what they said or did. But there's a, maybe a backstory behind there that we don't understand the full picture. God knows the backstory on everyone's actions and everyone's behavior. I didn't ever play this game much in Texas, but I've, I've, when I would go to uh, parties and things here, everyone is playing that beanbag toss game called cornhole. And I started playing. I realized I wasn't very good. But so on my birthday, Mrs. Lee got me a cornhole game. And so now I'm in the backyard with the boys tossing that little beanbag around. And I, had, I, had a, I made a scoring uh, error when I first got the game. Yeah, there's four, you have four bags, your opponent has four bags, and you toss them all four on this one side, then you go to the other and do the same thing. Well, you get one point for getting on the board and three points for getting in the hole. But one of the great strategies is, tr is to try to hit your opponent's beanbag off. 
if you, I, what I would do at first is I would keep score before the round was over. I'd say, okay, we have three and you have one. We have this and you have that. Well, the score keeps changing so much so you don't get an accurate read because of all the beanbags that get tossed off. You don't get an accurate read until the round is completely over because the score changes so much. And you know what? That's the same way in the Christian life, life I was thinking one day. You don't get an accurate read on the assessments of other people until it's all over, <laughs> until the end comes. And at that point, guess what? You don't need to keep score anymore <laughs> because the one who does his job well is keeping score and he sees all the junk inside of man's intrinsic heart. He gets the job done perfectly. And, and then look at the last phrase of verse 5. It says this, At that time, each one will receive his praise from God. Don't get too confused on the word praise. We use the word praise as it's stated in the book of Psalms. The word praise simply means to speak well of. And so when we're praising the Lord, we're speaking well of the Lord and his many attributes. When we receive our praise from God, it is not as though God will worship us, but it is though he will speak well of us. And the word we're told he will say in Matthew 25 is well done, good and faithful servant. And so one of the things we must note as we're trusting God to do his job well is to remember B is that our reward is with Christ. Sometimes we're wanting to be rewarded too early. We're wanting the praises of man. And the Lord reminds us in Matthew chapter 6 that if you, if you want man's praise for giving, for fasting, for praying, well, I hope you enjoyed it because that's the only reward you got. If you want man's favor, that little bit blast of a temporary enjoyment you got is it. But if you entrust judgment to God and you quit thinking highly of the human court, and you allow the Lord's scrutiny in your life, and you wait until the appropriate time comes, then he will speak well of you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Some of you may have felt that verse I've quoted at the beginning, that the fear of man will prove to be a trap, and you are quite trapped this morning. You, you wish that there was some kind of laser you could buy, because you sort of believe that perception really is reality. Perception is not reality. Why? Because we can't see that well. But the living God sees perfectly, and his timing is awesome. So become free this morning from the temporary praises of men and draw into the eternal focus on the living God. As we enter into a time of prayer, I'd like us to bow together this morning and as we wait for a moment of response before the Lord. And today, maybe some of you have allowed the fear of man to keep you from placing your faith in Christ. Maybe you've sat here in these pews realizing, you know what, I've really never made a profession of faith. I've really never given my life to Christ, but everyone thinks I have. I don't really want to go public with this. I, I just kind of take my chances. Maybe some of you, I, I know that some of you have uh, come to place your faith in Christ, but you've never uh, experienced believer's baptism after conversion, and God has made that clear to you, but you're, there's an unwillingness, maybe because of man's opinion. Maybe there's other issues that the fear of man has brought in your life, and as we in a, in a moment, stand together, I'd like you to just feel the freedom just to deal with God as he's speaking to you from his word about being free from that fear. Living Lord, we're thankful for grace through faith, for the beautiful gospel of Jesus. And our prayer today is that you would engineer circumstances to draw people to your truth. So shall it be, almighty God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.